Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Yeah, that sounds better. The Sunday school children, if they can be on their way out to the crash corner, the Sunday school children, if they can be on their way to the crash corner. I would like to express my gratitude and thanks to God for the opportunity to stand before you today and to have the privilege to share in the assembly responsibility of bringing God's word to us this morning. I also want to give thanks to the eldership for allotting me this slot or allocating me this time on this day that I could stand before uh, every one of us. Uh, before we turn to the word of God, I will invite us that we turn to the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your mercy and for your grace upon our lives. We give thanks for your gathering hand that has brought us here this morning that we might hear you speak to us. We pray now, Lord, as we turn to the sacred pages of scriptures, that, dear Lord, you be pleased to be with us and that you speak to us and instruct us in your own way. Be with me, dear Lord, as I'll be opening my mouth to share God's word that I may not wander in thought and in speech. Forgive my sin, O God, that it may not act as a barrier for the effective communication of your word to your people. The same we pray for the listeners, dear Lord, that you be with them and forgive their sins, that collectively our sin will not hinder you speaking to us in this day. We plead the holy angels to come and attend us as we worship you and now as we listen to your word. Do these things for us as we plead and ask through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. As the eldership were giving church notices, uh, the elder Katusha had alluded to the fact that we are still in the resurrection uh, mood celebrating the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the dead. And so we have for this period the grand theme of the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But for our discussions, our sake for the particular portion of scripture that we'll be looking into today, I've decided to entitle our discussion as Daring Disobedience. Daring disobedience. And this one is coming from John chapter 21, and we shall read the first 14 verses. John chapter 21, and we shall read the, 14, the first 14 verses. So, shall we turn then to our Bibles? John chapter 21. And we shall read from verses 1 to 14. I commence reading, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version or Bible. And if you have a Bible like mine, it says, the heading there is, Jesus manifests himself to the seven disciples. So, chapter 21, verse 1 then. 
After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the sea of Tiberias. And I think the other, there are two other names that sea has. It's also called the Sea of Gennesaret. It is also called the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, this is John and James, and two other and two others of his disciples were together. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, that is verse 4, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right hand side of the boat and you find a catch. So they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of, some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up, drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured or dared to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave, and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Just allow me to extend a little bit in 15 to 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because 
he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. There ends our reading this morning. This chapter that we have just read is a final chapter in the book of John. And the body of this book is concluded in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We can just briefly read that portion when you flip over the page. In 30 and 31, John records the following. Therefore, many other signs also many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this portion that we are looking at this morning is the concluding chapter is the concluding chapter and as we see John chapter 1 verse 1 to 18 is the introduction in the book and in it in chapter 1 verse 1 to 18 the holy spirit there explains that explains to us what Christ was before he came from the father to do his redemptive work the conclusion in chapter 21 shows what Christ is after his redemptive work is done and as he prepares to return to the Father. So we have the before and after starting of the ministry of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the subsequent return to the Father in between the portions that I have referred to. What we see in the chapter that we have read is indeed a clear testimony that Jesus Christ is alive. In fact, at the end of the first section, as we have seen in verse 14, it says that this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And what this does, it reminds us that the resurrection of the Savior from the dead is the focus of the portion of Scripture that we have just looked at this morning. And the detail of the narrative makes it clear for us. This is the final proof, if you like, that John gives us that Jesus Christ came back to life after death. There also seems to be bits of things that seem to be going on as John is writing this thing. And the, the reason is very simple. The portion in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, if John ended his gospel in that manner, there would have been some other hanging questions that needed to be clarified or to be addressed. And so, in chapter 21, it seems some of those hanging issues, John wraps them up nicely as he closes with the narrative in chapter 21. And some of the questions that seems to be hanging are as follows. Question one, 
What was the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples after his resurrection? And we have seen the answer in chapter 21, verse 1 to 14. The second question is, what happens to Peter who denied, fled, and wondered about the resurrection? And verse 15 to 17 of the portion we read answers that question. The third question that John seems to be addressing in this is, what should the disciples be anticipating in the future? And again, if we read further in verses 18 to 19 of the portion, John answers that question as well. And the answer would find if we read further, it was going to be persecution, that the Lord was preparing them uh, to, to have or to, to, to have in the future as they go about their ministry. The fourth question is also a question that has to do with a statement that the Lord Jesus Christ made. Because if we read the whole narrative down to verse 20, to the end of chapter 21, we'll discover as the Lord was restoring Peter to ministry, and he calls him, follow me. Peter turning around, he sees John following and the other disciples. Then he turns to the Lord and asks a question, Lord, what about this man? And then the Lord Jesus Christ answered him and said, if I so desire that John leaves or remains until I return, what that business is to you? And so there happened to be some kind of rumor that was going on to say, no, the Lord has said John was going to leave until the Lord returns. But we all know John is not alive in our present day and age. I'm sure he's buried somewhere in the land of Palestine. And that also, John answers that in verses 20 to 23 of, of, of this particular portion. The fifth question was to do with what John again recorded in John 20, which we referred to John 20, 30 to 31. Why were the other miracles that Christ did, why were they not recorded so that we have a complete package of all the things that Christ did? And in verses 24 to 25 of the portion, when you read further, the answer is provided. So then, what we see in this chapter is that John is tying up some of the loose ends to complete the story and answer all the remaining and hanging questions, and at the same time showing us the reason Christ in some wonderful positions and the relations to his disciples. So then this morning, we will look at this chapter that we have read, chapter 21, verse 1 to 14. This chapter, we will answer the question, what will be the Lord's relationship to his disciples after he has risen from the dead? You and me know very well that prior to the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ was their everything. He was they are everything. And when I say they are everything, I'm referring to the disciples. Jesus Christ was their everything. He provided all they needed on every level. And in the upper room, in the same book of John, the night before his death, he had promised them he would continue to do that. He had promised them that whatever they ask, he would provide. And that all of heaven's resources would continue to be available to them. Now, what happened after this promise is that they were fearful 
about it and they were doubting whether that was a reality. They were afraid that when he was leaving, they would not know where he was going and how to get there. They were also very insecure about the relationship they would have with him in the future. And obviously, uh, this was compounded by the fact that they could not grasp that the Messiah was actually going to die. Because several times he would be speaking to them about, telling them about his death and so forth. But they kept asking questions. And that tells us a story that I think the disciples had not yet grasped um, the, the understanding that the Messiah had to die in order for the world uh, to, be, uh, to be saved. Now that they know he died, now they know he rose from the dead, but the question still lingers. What can they expect from him in the future? It can't be like the way it was when he was there every day, providing for them all their needs. The answer to this question is the one that comes from the first 14 verses that we have read in John chapter 21. This account in these 14 verses demonstrates that the Lord is still, number one, compassionate. Number two, he is sympathetic. Number four, he is tender-hearted. Number three, number five, sorry, he is also loving towards his disciples even after his resurrection. Even after he is glorified, he still takes a personal, very practical interest in meeting their needs, which gives us also, as modern-day Christians, an illustration post-resurrection that we need for the promises that are also extended to us through them. We sang a hymn just a short while ago, standing on the promises of God my Savior. If these things never happened, if what was happening to the Lord never took place, we would not comfortably stand here and sing about these promises and how we can stand upon them and believe them and accept them. This had to be so, so that we also would be comforted to share in the very promises that the Savior made to his disciples before he was crucified. And now that he is risen and is going to heaven and what was going to come after us. We will look at this portion of scripture in its historical character, but also behind it and behind the scenes of this particular portion of scripture, there is an inescapable lesson for us which is going on in the opening part of the chapter in verses 1 to 5. It is inescapable it is an inescapable lesson because it is exactly what is recorded here and we do not have to dig deeper into it to see the difference between what happens when you obey and when you disobey the Lord. That is clearly illustrated in the portion that we have read. We have in the first five verses disobediency. We have in the closing Verses from chapter 6 to 11, obedience. In the opening verses, we have disobedience that results in failure 
and failure that results in loss of fellowship. And in the closing verses, we have obedience which results in success and intimate fellowship with the Lord. These are inescapable lessons and realities for us to see in this wonderful account as we look at this particular book. So then, verses 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Obviously, the statement there, after these things, indicates that this is actually the closing section because there are certain things that have been discussed in chapter 20 and the other chapters there. And then after all these things that had happened, the Lord now is manifesting himself to the disciples. Exactly when these things took place, we do not know. But we can deduce that between the eighth day when Jesus appeared to the disciples and the fourth day, when he ascended into heaven, this third appearance occurred. Third, as it is designated in verse 14. When we go to verse 14, it tells us, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We know from Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 that he was with them for 40 days. And then the, the meaning of what Acts, maybe we can turn quickly to Acts chapter 1 and we read verses 3. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by men that's Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, we are informed there that the Lord was with the disciples for 40 days. But now, we need to understand that he wasn't with them for all the 40 days as in every day, every day. No. He appeared here. I, I think last week our brother Willie did a good job. He showed us clearly how he appeared. Uh, on the day of the resurrection, he appeared, I think, about five times, if I'm not mistaken. And then on the eighth day, which was the next Sunday, he appeared to them again. And then thereafter, there was a period until this incident now taking place at the Sea of Tiberias. So, uh, it does not mean that the Lord was with them every day and teaching them all these things and so forth. No. Uh, he appeared to them and then there were other things, obviously, that he was doing, which we may not be made aware because the scriptures do not reveal some of those things to us. This incident happened in Galilee. They had to go from Judea to Galilee, a journey that would take them some time. Before, they had seen him in the upper room when he was with them in Judea, and now they are in Galilee. 
They had been waiting for him for a while and finally he appears to them to say that he had taught these things concerning the kingdom for 40 days is not to understand what the portion in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 is teaching. Sometime in between the 8th and the 40th day, Jesus manifested himself. And John uses that term uh, twice in verse 1. We have to understand that this is a supernatural appearance of Christ as if out of nowhere. The same way he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the very day he rose again. He also appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to the apostles in the upper room. Coming into the room with the doors and everything locked and closed for fear of the Jews. He would just walk through the walls and there he was meeting them and discussing uh, with them. He is now in glorified uh, resurrection form. He manifests himself and let me remind us here that even though he could, not, he could be seen because he was physically alive, he was not known because his body was different. His glorified body was very different. Mary Magdalene, as we heard last week, mistook him for a gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus had no idea of this person they walked with and talked, got inside the home, they ate, until he had blessed the meal and he left. Then they could do, uh, their eyes could be opened to understand who that important visitor uh, they had. And here again he appears. And then they don't know who he is because they do not know who he was in the glorified form. Because the glorified form is different. He must therefore disclose himself or identify himself. And he does so on this occasion because his body is different. It's a body for eternity and a body for heaven and not for this earth. So, this time he manifests himself in Galilee by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had told his disciples to go back in Matthew, uh, Matthew 28. Let's turn to Matthew 28 briefly. Yeah, Matthew 28, and we'll read in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Then let's jump into uh, verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So we, we, we get back to our, our portion. But we need to bear in mind that back in Matthew 28 and verses 10 and 16, Jesus had taught the disciples that they needed to go to Galilee and wait for him at the mountain that he had designated for them to meet and for this meeting to take place. But what is happening here, as John records, when the Lord appears, he does not find his disciples at the mountain. He finds these guys, or these disciples, at the Sea of Galilee. 
And already, there seems to be a problem. An instruction is given. Go to Galilee, to this particular mountain that has been designated for the meeting to take place. And all of a sudden, he appears. The people are not in the mountain. He finds them at the sea, daring the Lord in disobedience. Daring the Lord in disobedience. The problem we see here is that when this narrative opens, the disciples are not at the mountain, but at the, sea of the, at the Sea of Galilee. Immediately we notice their disobedience because they are not in the place he told them to be. They should have been where, they shouldn't have been where they are now, but where the Lord had told them are to be. In verse 2, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of the disciples were together. Then verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Verse 2 introduces us to the disciples who were with Simon Peter. Thomas called Didmas, Nathaniel, son of Zebedee, that's John and James, and uh, the other two disciples whose names are not mentioned, though many Bible scholars and uh, authorities suggest Philip and Andrew, as these were part of the inner circle. The seven of them are found at the sea, and then the other, the other four are not mentioned here, and we do not know where they are. Perhaps maybe they are the ones who are at the mountain. We do not know. That is not given to us, and we would not uh, concentrate on that so much. The other four, it is suggested of them that they could not be part of the seven simply because maybe they were not the fishermen. Remember, this group of the seven, with exclusion of Thomas, the six of them, they were originally fishermen, and when the Lord met them, it is at this very same spot where this thing is taking place, at the Sea of Galilee. And so here we have an inclusion of this gentleman called uh, Thomas, who joins, uh, who joins and he gets thrown in there. And if we ask, why is Thomas included in the six? Again, there's a suggestion that has been given by many authorities that when the Lord appeared to them that evening of the resurrection, Thomas was not there. And as the Lord spoke and gave a blessing and said, receive the spirit and the, do not be afraid and all that, Thomas had missed all that. By the time he was pitching back into the room, he was told the news and he could not believe. He says, no, 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 I will believe nothing until I see it myself. I even take my hands, my fingers there and see his side where he was, he was, he was pierced. And so it is suggested, because he was not with them once and missed a great deal, this time around, wherever the leaders go, he also follows, so that he may not have anything to miss should the Lord appear to them. Now, this is a very dangerous uh, situation to be in, because sometimes leaders may mislead you like the case that we have here. Peter is misleading these other six counterparts of his into disobeying the command of the Lord. 
And Thomas is just following because the leaders are going in that direction. I think there is need for us to check the kind of company that we are keeping as we live our lives so that we don't just tussle about and swing about wherever the wind, the wind blows. It's very, very important that we stand on what we stand on and get to know the correct word of God and what it teaches for us. The group of six, excluding Thomas, were the first disciples Jesus called to follow him back in John chapter 1, verse 35, all the way down. This is the group that said we have found the Messiah. Only Thomas seems, like I said earlier, to be the stranger into this group. The disciples could have been up on the mountain. We do not know. Because the time indicators are not given in the portion that we read and they are not mentioned here. But what we hear is that Simon says to them, I am going fishing in verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will come with you. Now according to Bible scholars here, the form of that statement from Simon Peter, I am going fishing... In its original language, they say it is a final statement. It's a final statement, which means that Peter was saying, I am going back to my old career as a fisherman. The man Simon Peter never had patience, as we know from Scripture, for anything. He was a goal-oriented man, and it is clear from Scripture here that he could not wait any longer for the Lord as had already given them the command. He was filled with doubt as a result of his failures that were epic during the trial of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he denied the Lord three times that night before the cock had, uh, uh, had crowed. Thank you for, for that. He is thinking, and if you can remember, they, you know, they had been commissioned in, in, John, in John 20, where we are, John chapter 20, verse 21. If we read John 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. I think our brother Willie did mention this to us last Lord's Day. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. The Lord said to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father sends me, I also send you. The question is, what was the Lord sending the disciples to do? Obviously, is to be preachers and to be fishers of men. Because in John chapter 1, verse 35, we see this. When uh, Peter is washing the nets and all that, the Lord appears, he teaches and he does everything there. He asks them, they said, Master, we have toiled all night and we've caught nothing and so forth. He tells them, cast your nets in the deep. They had a great catch and the nets started breaking. They had to beg on their friends. They came, they hold the thing. And when they got to the land, the Lord told them to leave everything they had and he said, follow me. They left everything there and followed, followed him. And he says, I'll make you fishers of men. And in John chapter 20, verse 21, the commission or the confirmation of the statement made by the Lord earlier in John chapter 1, verse 35, is brought to the fore. As the Father sent me, I also send you. Peter 
had self-doubt and does not know what the future is going to bring. He does not know yet or none of all of them because they had not received the Spirit yet. Um, the Spirit had not yet come and that hadn't occurred yet to give them the power. They are not sure what's going to happen. It's at this point Peter proposes to go back to his career. When he says, I'm going fishing, he's saying, I'm going back to what I used to do. So he disobeys and he's a leader. And like, you know, ducks in a row, these are the five, six guys follow behind and they head to the sea and they follow him. We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. Again, I think teachers of English here, like Antikatebe, can help us. If they said he got into a boat, it would carry a certain connotation. But it says they got into their boat. Their boat, this boat is being identified. It's being singled out and it's being specified. And we know from John 1.35, these guys had nets, they had boats and things. So we don't know. Maybe it could have been these same boats of theirs. They found them there. After all, it was just a span of about almost two, three years. Uh, that they had walked with the Lord. The Messiah dies, he, rose, he rises again. And there they go. They got onto the boat. They were boat owners, they had nets. Peter's boat is identified. And he had all, they had all sorts of things. It's like he's saying to them, I don't know about this fishing for men business, but I know for sure I can catch fish. And the other six says, we will come with you. Because they were, they were fishermen with the exception of Thomas who just jumped onto the group and off they went. And that night they caught nothing. So much for self-confidence. They had three years before, uh, they were taught to drop their nets and stop fishing for fish, but start fishing for men. And we see this in Luke chapter 5, and verses 1 to 10, that account is also recorded. Fast forward, three years later, Peter is on the mountain, Impatient, where is the Lord? Self-doubt kicks in and he says, I'm going back fishing. It's an amazing thing to say, given the fact that Jesus was alive from the dead. And he saw him, he had appeared. He went to the tomb, we saw that last Lord's Day. He went into the tomb, checked the linen and everything. The Lord appeared to them that evening when they were in the upper room, in, in the room where they had locked themselves. He saw that the, the Lord revealed himself and he knew Jesus had risen from the dead. But it is at that point that Peter decides to disobey the law and says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my own career. And verse 3 tells us at the end that that night they caught nothing, absolutely nothing. And we read verse 15. After the breakfast that Jesus had with the disciples, he asks Peter, Peter, son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? The, this statement in the passage does not refer to the other disciples. It is referring to the nets and boats because it was a clear demonstration that his love for the Lord, he had failed the Lord. He had failed to demonstrate love for God because if he loved the Lord, he would have obeyed him to the latter like he was proclaiming. Where you die, I'll die. I'll die for you. We, we've, we have seen and our brother was showing us some of uh, these glimpses last, last week. Now there he is. He has seen the Lord and everything is happening. Uh, the Lord is appearing, but still he seems not to care. He decides, I forget this. I'm going back fishing. 
This, dear brethren, is about who you love and the devotion you render to the same. Do you love me more than these things that have been your life? From the text we know and have seen, the Lord asked Peter uh, this question three times, and Peter was answering, trying to convince the Lord that he loved him and he loves him. When he, indeed, he has not demonstrated it because of his disobedience, right before him and right before the Lord himself. So, here, brethren, is a picture. If we step away from the calling of God has placed upon our lives and go in opposite direction, if we go the path of self-will and self-effort, we may think we can accomplish a lot, yet we may end up being a failure. We may end up in failure. Disobedience leads to failure. It's just a simple principle. When God calls and gifts you, into his ministry in his kingdom, whether as a professional person or as a lay person, uh, when you look at ministry opportunities and you turn your back and walk away, and if it's your gift and your opportunity, you fail at what you do. And that is exactly what happened here. We must remember always, the Lord does not reward disobedience. He rewards obedience. We have seen this. These people were professional men. They knew when to catch fish, how to catch it, where to catch They understood. If you go where my mother used to come from, there is a Rapura River there, and further when you go further, you find the Mweru. And the people that stay there, they know the different type of Mwela, and all these things. And this is the kind of life these guys, they knew exactly what needed to be done. But disobedience to the Lord's command had cost them. And that night, they toiled all night. They couldn't catch anything. And so, if we are not careful of how we use these things that the Lord gifts us with, we may have challenges in the things that we may resort running to. In verse 4, as we come to verse 4, the day was breaking, which means Peter had been proving to catch fish all night, kept going until daybreak. Jesus stood on the beach. Out of nowhere he appears, yet disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And that fits in well with every post-resurrection initial appearance of Jesus. Remember, at the tomb, Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener. The disciples on the road to Emmaus, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened? To the other women, to the disciples, and to everyone else. And his appearance this time around fits in very well. And the reason we have already seen that, it's because he was in his glorified state. Until the Lord reveals himself or introduces himself to us, we cannot know him. So it is even in salvation. The Bible teaches us that man is totally deprived. Man can't save himself. It takes the grace of God for man to be awakened in his uh, state of sin and be able to see his sinfulness. And the Lord regenerates the brain as it were, make the cells active and live again, and pushes such a one to run to repentance in the Lord. Exactly what is happening here. These friends of ours in total disobedience to the command of the Lord. And they can't know when the Lord has appeared. They are just wondering, ah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a ghost or something, and so forth. Until the Lord introduces himself in a, particular, in a particular manner. What do we see? 
Jesus says to them, uh, we go back to the text. In verse 5, Jesus says to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Jesus says to them in a broad, generic sense of children. Now, if, if we check, and you see this book is very interesting, uh, taking time to read through and order, then you begin seeing the pieces together. The Lord uses certain words that are words like words of endearment to them. He calls them friends. He calls them brethren, he calls them my brother, and all these things. But in this instance here, he calls them little children. Now, that word little children does not carry the endearment aspect that had been used uh, previously in the other verses that we have seen. He uses that, I think, for lack of a better word, I may say, uh, he uses it uh, like... Uh, he was displeased with what they were doing. He was displeased with their disobedience. They were acting like children who did not know what was happening. They had seen him, they knew him, and you know, he had been with them all this while. And then they just disobey and go. And then he calls them. Little children, do you have any fish? You don't have any fish, do you? And what is happening here? is that their disobedience had led them to failure and loss of intimacy with the Lord. It has affected their relationship with the Lord, and he is now talking to them in less endearing terms. He's talking to them almost in strange terms as if they were strangers to him and he to them. Again, what we see here, brethren, is a pattern. We see that disobedience leads to failure and a breach in a relationship. Loss of fullness of fellowship and intimacy with the Lord. Back in John chapter 14, verse 21 to 23, the Lord said a couple of times in there that if we love him, we will obey his commands. And that we should not say we love the Lord if we don't obey him. In short, if we love the Lord like Peter was claiming to love the Lord, we must obey him and in turn he will empower us and will be successful and will enjoy his presence and fullness of joy in our relationship and communion with him. But if, the pattern of but if the pattern of disobedience is what we go in, we are going to fail and we are going to lose that communion and fellowship with him. So Jesus then says, children, you do not have any fish, do you? It's like the Lord is rubbing it in. They've toiled all night and he knows it's like he mocking them. You know, he knows that they've got no fish. They've toiled all night long and they've got nothing. And then he asks them, you don't have any fish, do you? But he knows. It's like, and the reason why he's doing this, there's a point that the Lord is driving here. The point he's driving, he's trying to show them their state of disobedience, their state of loss of fellowship, loss of intimacy, uh, their state of, for lack of a better word, their state of sin. Because they've disobeyed him. In fact, the rendering of little children, you don't have any fish, do you? Most Bible scholars attest to the fact that this is the best rendering in the original Greek. I've never studied Greek. 
But that's what they say when you read other books commenting on these matters and so forth. So after this statement, we notice the Lord fastening their attention to the fact that they had been disobedient. They have failed, owing, they have failed, they, they have failed to notice the Lord as he stands on the shore. They can't recognize him. And owing to the distance that was there between the beach and where the disciples were on the lake, the Lord was almost shouting or yelling as he was communicating to them. And he asks them this question. The text tells us that the disciples were 100 yards away from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You don't have any fish, do you? The answer is no. This episode of what is going on, I find it very interesting for the following reason. Number, number one, and it's just one reason. It is good before the Lord provides for us graciously that we are made aware or conscious of our failure and then we must articulate that failure, confess it, acknowledge it. The Lord wants to hear the, the Lord wants to hear them say, "No, we have failed. We have nothing. There's nothing that we have achieved." This is where our impatience, our disobedience, and self-doubt has led us to failure, and we acknowledge it. Do you have any fish? Do you? The answer is clear: no to him. So this is the situation: failure and they must admit it. They don't know who he is, and he talks to them just like any other different group of fishermen uh, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. Dear brethren, life can go this way very commonly to the disciples of Jesus Christ, even to us today in our time and age, even in this church at Riverside Chapel. You have been gifted, you have been called, you have been given a spiritual opportunity, but instead of doing it, instead of following obediently what the Lord has led, has led you to do, you turn away from it and go back the other way to other things. The Lord will not bless that. There is going to be a measure of failure. You will lose that intimacy with Christ. And as we step into the kingdom and the work of the kingdom and the things that he puts before us to do, Whatever service that might be within his kingdom, whatever that might involve, as we do it, we will find that he will empower us and provide for our success and we will enjoy the sweet intimacy and fellowship with him. We might be wasting our energies on things that pass away. They are temporal, they are earthly, they have no eternal use or value. If that is the case, I implore you here today, by the message of God that you may turn back and come in and find yourself busy doing kingdom business. Do you find it too busy to teach or join the Sunday school as a ministry? Do you find it very difficult to be part of the morning service or the evening services at the assembly hall here? Are you too busy to attend the prayer meeting every Thursday or Saturday? Are you too busy to visit other brethren and share their lives and they share yours? Do you find yourself going down on this path and lose the joy and intimacy with the Lord? There are failures and they acknowledge them. Peter thought he could do one thing for sure, that is fishing. He can't anymore because the Lord won't, won't let 
the fish go near his net. And that, that's what we see here. We can never run away from God. Time is not our best ally. Let's quickly move to verse 6. So we turn to the second portion of this particular uh, chapter that we are looking at. And we've moved from failures and disobedience. Verse 6. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you find a catch. Seven. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, he put, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The Lord said, cast your net to the right-hand side of the boat, and you find a catch. Obviously, the first reaction will be to this command. This command is very ridiculous. We've been toiling all night long. We've not caught any fish. Does, does he think we have not tried both sides, the right and the left? Does he think the boat is stuck in one position and we can't move it in any direction? Does he think the fish knows the difference between the right and the left? One thing that we notice from here is in this section or episode is that the command that the Lord gave, cast your net onto the right-hand side of the boat. It was as compelling to the disciples to do it, it was also as compelling to the fish to move into the nets of the disciples. We see immediately he tells them, cast it on the right. Immediately. Now, all night long, and I'm sure they must have gone to Mutsunguro because fish is better caught in the night than during the day. Now, all night long, and then in the morning, it's difficult because they say, in the night, the fish comes to the surface to see a bit of light and eat and so forth. So it's very easy to catch it. During the day, there's enough light and the fish goes deep down. Now, he's telling them to do this. It's during daybreak. It's in the morning. In the night, they've got nothing. The command of the Lord was very compelling so that the apostles obeyed. They obeyed and the fish obeyed to move into Peter's net and his friends. Who would say and know from 100 yards, from a distance of 100 yards of the sea or lake, would know that, uh, would know that if they cast a net on the right, they would see? No one would know that. But here, we are dealing with the master of the universe, the one who controls nature. It is because of the authority of the Lord over nature and all creation in verse 6, they cast their net and they were not able to bring the fish into the boat the great number of fish again here reminds them of the Luke chapter 5 experience that they had at the time when he was calling them to ministry and move with them. So here against what seems rational to them or irrational, they are compelled to obey the Lord and there is immediate success. In fact, the success was super abundant. And I want to remind us here that it is in this simple illustration is of the fact that when we obey the Lord, the Lord empowers our success. The Lord blesses, the Lord supplies, and the Lord enriches. So they cast the net 
the evidence is right before their own eyes. They caught so much fish, and this was shocking. But it had happened again three years ago before they went uh, to follow him. So, we know that this is the same Christ risen from the dead, performing a miracle very much like at the beginning of his relationship with his disciples. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is how John identifies himself, said to Peter, It's the Lord. He is the one who commands the fish. And this is the one post-resurrection miracle that we see. Again, there is evidence right before us. The Lord is risen and he performs a miracle again after him having risen from the dead. The miraculous catch. The breakfast that they also had on the beach. Because he appeared when they get to the land, they find the fire is already done. Where did the Lord get the fish from? The bread that was laid there. They come in and he offers them uh, to eat all those, uh, those things. When Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment... And we are, told, we are told he was stripped for work. Usually if you've been to where rivers are, most fishermen, they don't like wearing clothes because sometimes they go into the water where their nets are stuck and things like that. So they wouldn't go in with that. Those who make them heavy when they are working. So they would have like, uh, they, they are just dressed. They, they dress loosely so that they could be able to do all that. So I, I don't know what they call it in other languages, but in my mother tongue, they call it mobinde. You know, they would wear just something around the midsection here, covering as they are waking. And when Peter hears it's the Lord, he was in that state. So quickly he gets his cloak, he puts it on, and he threw himself into the water and began uh, swimming to the shore. He begins swimming to the shore. Peter can be noted here as having or possessed an interesting personality. There was no little thought about anything. He said whatever came to his mind and did whatever his impulse drove him to do. When he dived into the water to swim to the shore, he left his friends, you know, towing or rather pulling, the six of them pulling the, the net full of fish. He left it with them, a lot of fish, and he left it with them to figure out how they were going to do it. And notwithstanding all these shortcomings uh, coming from him like any one of us, there is something wonderful about Peter's eagerness to be near the Lord. It's like he was glad to be found out. He swam to the shore to meet the risen Lord, whom he loved as he had already, or had, as he would later uh, proclaim in verse uh, 15. One good thing about Peter is he knew his weakness, he knew his uh, frailty, and he could, not, he could not get back to the Lord fast enough. He wanted forgiveness, he wanted to be restored, and he gets it as we see in verse 15, the portions that we read when the Lord is asking, Peter, Peter, son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? There's no thinking there. It's the Lord. The man puts his coat on into the water, he gets to the sea and things are, he gets to the shore and the conversation begins to take place. In verse 8, the other disciples are coming in the small boat as we read. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not, they were not far from the land 
but about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish. So when they got onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. We see... Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, firstly, I would like to thank the church leadership, the eldership, for giving me this opportunity to share the word of God to you, with you. I also want to, would like to thank those who prayed for me. Uh, thank you very much. Um, lastly, I want to thank God for the privilege of being an, given a, an opportunity to preach his word this morning. Shall we just turn to the words to the Lord in prayer? Our gracious and loving Father who is in heaven, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you, we honor you, and we glorify your name for this privilege to be found in, the, in your place of worship in order to worship you. It is our desire, Lord, that as we do so, we invite you to be in our midst and take full control of our proceedings. I pray for myself that you will grant me clarity of thought and speech even as I share your word with your people. I commend everyone who is present in this sanctuary that Father you give them a single-mindedness to desire to listen to you and hear you even as you speak to them but more importantly, that they may be able to receive that which you have personally and individually prepared for each one of us. And that, Father, at the end of our time together, each one of us may not go away empty-handed, but that we feel that we have received that which you have prepared for us. We pray and ask these things in the worthy name of your Son, and our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our subject of study this morning is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven. This is one of the critical events in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. So I deliberately thought that perhaps before we go to this study, we can look at the other critical events in the life of our Savior whilst he was on earth. 
I've deliberately done so and wish, wish to point out from the onset that when we look at the life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Bible, we see a very well-defined God's plan to save his people. We can confirm from the facts recorded both in the Old and New Testament that Christianity is based on historical facts. We cannot separate Christ of faith from the historical Jesus. He is one and the same. He lived a perfect life on this earth in Jerusalem and was crucified on the cross and rose from the dead. So, therefore, apart from the ascension of the Savior, the other three major events I wish to consider quickly is to confirm what I earlier alluded to as God's plan to save his people. And firstly, I want to point out that when you look at the birth of our Savior, the Bible records in Matthew 1 and verse 18 to emphasize the uniqueness of his birth. The Bible records that the Savior was born through the power of the Holy Spirit to a virgin mother Mary. This was important for the role that the Savior would later perform to save the, youth, the sinful human race. Uh, for those that wish to perhaps research one of the uh, uh, Bible Verses we could look at is Philippians 7, uh, verse 8. But I'm saying, I'm just pointing out so that I can build up my, my presentation on the ascension. Um, another historical fact that you can look at is his missionary work. You, we see the uniqueness of the missionary work of our Savior, which was accompanied by Miracles, which was a, a pointer to Christ being the Messiah. The Bible records that these miracles were being performed to show the people that Christ was truly the Son of God. The third item that I wish to also allude to is his death and resurrection. When you read through various uh, texts in the scriptures, you notice that both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, his death and resurrection were predicted. We are told of his cruel death on the cross, which is well documented we also notice the efforts, the authorities of the time put in after they remembered his teaching that you rise after the third day. We notice that they blocked off the, his resting place with a heavy stone that could not be moved by ordinary people. 
But all this went in vain because the Savior was able to resurrect on the third day. And when the authorities failed to prevent the resurrection, they went again to greater efforts to suppress the news of the risen Savior. You could see them paying off people and trying to suppress the news that the Savior was risen because they, they wanted to suppress his influence on his followers. We also noticed the confusion during this period among his own disciples. Some started to argue about everything. Others even abandoned their role as disciples and they went back fishing as preached last week by uh, Brother Richard. They completely deserted him. But these are the people who were with him all the time and listened to his teachings. They went away. We saw Peter denying him. Even worse, the disciples forgot that he would resurrect on the third day. So therefore, we can only assume that after our Savior resurrected, I want to imagine there was an opportunity he could have resurrected and gone straight to heaven. But he didn't do that because there were still things that he needed to take care of, such as the confusion with the disciples and go, again confirming with the authorities that he was a risen God. So we can assume the Bible records that the Savior, after resurrection, spent 40 days on earth. And I don't think this was a mistake. This was intended to be able to confirm certain things and, of course, uh, manage the confusion that arose after his death. Therefore, now I suggest that we turn to our portion of scriptures that we are sharing this morning, and it's coming from the book of Acts chapter 1, and our focus is from verse 9 to 11, but for the purpose of context, I'll read from verse 1 to 11. I'm reading from the new KJV uh, study Bible. And I'll commence reading. I hope we are all there. Verse 1. The former account I made, O Theopilus, of, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering 
by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Six. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Verse 9. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and the crowd received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, beyond, behold, two men stood by them in white apples, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, we will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I've entitled my sermon Ascension and its implications. And uh, I've, for easy communication, I've broken in, uh, the, the, the sermon into four parts. And uh, I'll start with explaining um, what ascension from the scriptures that we have read is, and then we'll look at implications and practical applications, and then I'll summarize to end my sermon. The dictionary meaning of ascension is the action of rising to an important position or a higher level. So ascension is the very act of the Lord Jesus Christ being lifted up and disappearing in the crowd. As we, dis as we discuss the implication later, we shall note that the Lord Jesus did not just disappear in the crowd, but was installed in a higher position on the right side of God his Father. 
The disciples were eyewitnesses to this happening, meaning their eyes were seeing him. They were fixed on him as he was being lifted up so that there could be no mistake about an event so supernatural. If you look at Acts 1, uh, verse 10, the Bible records that even after the Christ had gone out of sight, the disciples continued to look steadfastly towards heaven until two men in white clothing stood beside them, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come back in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The Bible uses the word looking, meaning to see, directing the eyes and attention upon an object. It was not as though Jesus was suddenly snatched out of their sight. He did not vanish. He had done, the way he had done, when leaving the disciples during the four days after resurrection. You remember the walk on the road. He suddenly just vanished. If you like, the picture that you get in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure we all watch TV and we watch football. When a striker scores the ball, those TVs will replay the action in slow motion so that they can give you a better view of the boss lorry making a goal, or a striker dribbling his opponents who are trying to stop him. This is the exact picture that you get. I, I want to imagine the disciples were standing there with Jesus, and suddenly he's being lifted up. And they're not seeing what is lifting up him up, but he's going up in heaven. That is the picture you, you get, and I, I bet that's why the Bible is saying the disciples were eyewitnesses because it happened just before their own eyes. They were able to see Christ going up, up and up and up until a receiving crowd came and engulfed him and therefore they could not see him any further. So we move on to our second point. What is the implication of this. So the implication to this was, first of all, it was proof of the resurrection of our Savior. Uh, we recall the authorities were fighting to ensure that the news of the resurrection is suppressed. So they fought, they bribed, they stopped everybody who was talking about it. But this public display of the power of God was so evident. So to the authorities, obviously, they must have gotten word because of what happened. It was a massive thing. Christ just going up there. For his followers, the disciples, he signaled that the teaching period was over. 
Because the 40 days that he spent with them was a time, first of all, to calm down their panic. But secondly, to teach them of what to do during the time that you will be gone to heaven. The teaching period was over and I suppose the awareness by his followers that he was with them all the time, even when they could not see them, came upon them. In reality, there truly was no disappearance of Christ. They just could not see him with physical eyes. He was no longer perceived by physical sight, but by spiritual insight. He bade his followers goodbye, ascended visibly into heaven, and disappeared from their sight. The receiving crowd of our Savior is closely associated in other parts of the scriptures with divine presence. I'm sure we can recall several times, we, time of Moses, God spoke to him through a crowd, and, and for those that wish to make references, Matthew 24, verse 30, and Revelations 1, verse 7, also talks about the Savior coming back in a crowd. The second thing, third thing that happened was that our Savior left the body of limitation. Remember, in his birth, he came to this world with human limitations by birth to a virgin mother in his resurrection. I referred to that earlier on. Our Lord withdrew from the world of limitations through ascension to be where God is. Our, Lord, our Lord's resurrection and body of ascension was different from the body laid in the tomb. Yet it was essentially the same because it could be seen touched, recognized, and he could drink and eat with them. But then he also appeared and disappeared. Yet he was there with them all the time. On his resurrection, remember when Mary was going away after being told that the Savior had risen and he showed up to them, the resurrected Jesus said, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, my God, and your God. So, the Christ, the body of the Christ that was in resurrection and ascending was not the same body that was put in the tomb. But again, we also notice that the other implication of the ascension was that 
God, the Lord Jesus Christ regained the unity with his Father. This unity I'm talking about is the Trinity of God, which is described as, a, as the unique relationship of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was designed to perform the redemption work of the cross, and in death on the cross, our Savior was separated from the Father. And therefore, the ascension of the Savior established that unit with his Father. If the Savior had stayed on earth in the physical human state, his physical presence would have been limited, would have limited the spread of the, the, the good news and the word of God. Because he could only be physically present in one place at a time. However, after Christ ascended to heaven, he became spiritually present everywhere through the Holy Spirit. And this was made so because as he promised in the text we read, Acts 1, chapter 4, verse 2, 8, I'll just read it again. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So, in my view, he noticed their limitations. And he wanted to empower them. So he says, which, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he wanted to empower them, to prepare them with this Holy Spirit so that uh, in his absence, they didn't become vulnerable. So this Holy Spirit was intended to comfort his people, guide them to know the truth, remind them of Jesus' teachings and fill them with power as we notice in uh, Acts 2 verse, uh, verse 14 the arrival the day of the Pentecostal you can see the enormous power that the disciples immediately the Holy Spirit came upon them they assumed Jesus further justified this in John 3, verse 16. He said to his disciples that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So the ascension, therefore, is the culmination of Christ's glorification after his resurrection. It opened up the entrance into the wider work of Christ the Lord and High Priest. Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, 
in Ephesians 1, 20-21, places strong emphasis on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and I quote, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rulers and authorities and power and dominion, and made him sovereign overall and head over all things to the church. So because of ascension, our Lord assumed his truly godly position in our lives. So we are talking about a risen Jesus Christ who is sitting on the right side of God and assuming his responsibilities over his people. So what application can we learn from this Jesus who was killed on our behalf and is risen and is seated with God? One of the many things that, we, that immediately comes to our minds is that as he sits there, this is a Christ that experienced being human. It's like in our lives as parents. We see our children grow. And they are very, very obedient to us up to a certain point. Along the way, they start discovering that at times you are perhaps not as good as, as they thought you were. And it becomes a challenge to believe everything that you do because they know certain things, they ask you to do some difficult adma, uh, homework with them and you give an excuse, no, go and ask your mother or your uncle. They start discovering, oh, maybe I think this is a challenge on dad or something like that. And their confidence levels start getting challenged. But even under those circumstances, we do not stop being parents to these children. So similarly, because Christ experienced our lives, he went through the same challenges that we go through in, on daily basis. He understands us. And there he is sitting on the right side of God and is looking at us as frail as we are looking at our various challenges, looking at our various faults, and Christ is able to intervene timely to his Father, interceding for us, saying, oh, fine, these are our children. So we are always in the presence of Christ. We are never out of his sight. 
and therefore never out of his mind. There are no earthly limitations of space and time because of his ascendance to stop him from seeing what is happening in our lives. Therefore, Christ has created a platform because of his forever presence for us to draw near and dwell in his presence. Remember, in Matthew 28, verse 20, uh, perhaps we could quickly just look at it and see what Christ is saying. Matthew 28, verse 20, the Bible reads, He's giving a commandment, teaching them to observe all things that have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ is always with us. Christ living, Christ is living, and in his life, we also live. Through him, we have fellowship with God. Because as Christ is interceding on our behalf, on the right hand of God, that's how close we are to God. And this is a Christ who has us in his mind all the time. So he's always communicating with his Father of who we are. The second practical application to us is that Christ is our Redeemer. If we turn to Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 2 Corinthians 5, Five twenty-one. If you are there, I'm there. I'll read for you. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the atoning sacrifice of Christ has removed our sins and guilty, and his righteousness has provided our acceptance with the Father. The atonement of Christ was a once-for-all complete and perfect atonement. Jesus Christ as earlier alluded, is human and divine high priest. As human, he understands us. A divine high priest is our God. He is able to sympathize with us, comfort us, and save us from our sins. The other implication 
because of his uh, ascension is found in Colossians 2 verse 19. Colossians 2 verse 19. Please, can someone who is there please read it out to all of us? If there's anybody who is there, I normally have difficulties finding where Colossians is. Anybody who is already there can read Colossians. Colossians 2.19? Yes. And not holding fast to the gate, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Yeah. So what simply we are being taught from there is that Christ, because he ascended, he has assumed his rightful law as head of the church. And because Christ is the head of the church, the church that we belong to, we take comfort in the things that he continues to do for us. Christ is the perfect mediator between man and God. The presence of Christ at the right hand of God, the Father, pleads on our behalf. He pleads by his presence on his Father's throne and is able to save through his intercessions. The other implication, final one that we see coming out of this arrangement is that because Christ ascended to heaven, he was able to fulfill the promises that he made to his followers. He was able to send the Holy Spirit. We notice clearly the relationship between the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of the Pentecost. Having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Christ in turn has poured out forth this Holy Spirit unto his followers. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is always with his followers. The Holy Spirit is with us everywhere. The Holy Spirit is with us in church. The Holy Spirit is with us in all our activities. What a joy. What a joy that we have this entitlement to be with the Holy Spirit in all our dealings. So how do we now appreciate these values that have been presented to us. And this is what I'm telling the application. How do we apply ourselves to these values that are so well presented to us? We can only honor our God by believing in him. And there 
many benefits that will accrue to us by believing in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The first benefit that we see from the passage of our study is that we will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is made available to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And this can only be received when we accept the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior. You cannot receive the Holy Spirit if you have not accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior. And once we make up our minds to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we set in motion an event of benefits that come to us. The presence of the Holy Spirit marks the beginning of our Christian experience. We cannot be Christians without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9 makes that very clear. And we cannot be joined to Christ without the Holy Spirit. We pick up that from Corinthians 6 verse 17. We cannot be the children of God without the Holy Spirit. As a church, we cannot be a body of Christ unless we have expressed our faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the power of our new lives as Christians. Once we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit takes over the rest. The Holy Spirit lives in us and manages our everyday life. He begins a lifelong process of changing, of changing, making us more like Christ. We are told in Philippians 6, Philippians 1, verse 6, perhaps we can refer to that quickly. Philippians 1, verse 6. If you are not there, I'm there, I'll read it. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
So once the Spirit takes care of us, He protects us, He guides us, He grows us in the things of God to make us more like Christ Jesus. When we receive Christ by faith, we begin an immediate personal relationship with God. So it doesn't stop at Jesus Christ. It means that we have also got access to his Father through him. But we also notice that the Holy Spirit does not just unite us with Christ and God. It also unites us amongst ourselves as the people of God. The Holy Spirit unites the Christian community in Christ. For those that wish to make reference, you can refer to Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 20. I think it's one of my favorite. Let's just read it together. Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 20. Dawson, are you already there? So you see, once we have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to relate with one another as God's children. There's no longer any division amongst us, and this is why we call each other brothers and sisters. So it unites communities. And above all, as we are united, we can all experience the work of the Holy Spirit. So, if these benefits are put before us, these are benefits that we can enjoy, brought about by our Savior ascending to heaven. What would stop us? What, what pulls us back from the desire to want to enjoy these benefits to the fullest? Over time, we have been having challenges meeting in various church programs as members of the local church. Meetings are called. And for some reason, we are not available. What is that saying about our relationship with the Holy Spirit and our relationship, relationships with one another? Shouldn't we, therefore, be trying to revisit 
our position. Let's have some retrospection, retrospection, where we look at the way we are relating with one another, the way we are relating with God. Are we still sustaining or are we are grieving the Holy Spirit that lives in us? So in conclusion, to our sharing this morning, I just want to state that after 40 days with his disciples, Jesus returned to heaven. It was important for the disciples to see Jesus taken up into heaven. They knew without doubt that he was God. Remember, they had misunderstandings, they had doubts, others deserted, others denied him like Apostle Paul, Peter. But after he spent the 40 days with them, they had no doubt about who he was. They knew without doubt that he was God and that his throne was heaven. But all this was done in order to prepare them for the work that was coming ahead of them. Because you can't go in any battle with doubts. Because you will not be able to fight the war. So Jesus Christ was able to foresee that if he went to heaven without spending time with his disciples, there would be challenges because the doubts would have continued to build up. The authorities would have continued to fan the doubts about his resurrection. So the Savior decided to stay on and that he made a public view of his ascendance to heaven in order to reassure his disciples that he was there for them. The two white-robed men were angels who proclaimed to the disciples that one day Jesus would return in the same way he had gone. He will return in body and he will be visible. Remember we said Jesus is both human and divine. So I want to believe that when he returns, he will return in his resurrected body so that we shall all be able to see his coming. Therefore, what do we conclude? I started with history. I might as well finish my sermon on history. History is not a hazard. It is moving towards a specific point. And in our study this morning, that specific point is the return of Jesus to judge and rule over the world. So what should we do then as Christians as we wait for this return? What challenge should we press upon ourselves I can only think 
of one very simple challenge for each one of us who is present here. Our challenge, as we wait for the second coming of our Savior, is to be ready for his sudden return. We shouldn't be ready like the disciples who were standing around staring into heaven well after he had disappeared. We have a new mandate. The Bible does, God, uh, the Bible does define how we should wait for the second coming of the Lord. And the definition, the role that the Bible has given us as we wait for the return of the Lord is by working hard to share the good news so that others who haven't heard the good news are given the opportunity to share in the blessings of God. Amen.